Taimarm of the Alter Rebbe on Hanukkah, on the idea of Hanukkah. And um, we started to discuss a little bit of Hanukkah on Thursday. And what we're really trying to understand is what is so special about the nace, the miracle of oil. Why do we sanctify, celebrate the holiday of Hanukkah, specifically through lighting the menorah with oil? Right? Unlike the other Yom and Tovim that we celebrate, where we celebrate a physical salvation with physical festivities, right? On Purim, we was, our lives were physically saved from the decree of Haman, and we celebrate with feasting and with joy. On Pesach, we were freed from the physical slave labor of Egypt, and we celebrate with eating physical matzah, uh, etc. But on Hanukkah, we started to explain the salvation was a spiritual one, because the Jewish people were on their own land. They were in the land of Israel during the time they had the Beis Hamikdash, they had, they were not, they did not have sovereignty over themselves. But for most of the period of the Second Temple, they did not have self-government anyway. Um, but they were, they were, their lives were not at stake. Their lives were not at stake. Their lives were not at risk. What was at stake? Their spiritual lives, right? Because the Yavanim, the Greeks. Um, the Greeks could not handle the idea that they believed in God and that they did things and that they learned Torah and did mitzvahs because God told them to. Everything had to be very, very intellectual and precise for the Greeks. Which Greeks were these, by the way? I just there was Hellenists. they were the Hellenists, but there were like three. There were there was the 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 Greeks of Rome, the Greeks of Greek. the Greeks of oh, I guess the Greeks of Athens, and then the Greeks of Egypt, right? Because Alexander the Great. He was the original Greek. He conquered the world, Macedonia. Then when he died, he split up his kingdom into three. And he appointed three heads. One in Egypt. Tepto, what was his name? Cleopatra is a Greek. She's Greek. And she's in Egypt, right? Yeah. So there was the Greek... Um, 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 there was a, this is relevant because there was, a huge, um, there was a huge Jewish community there under the Greek-Egyptian rule in Egypt um, until they were all wiped out. The entire community was wiped out there. Um, and then, so there were the Greeks of Egypt, there were the Greeks of Rome, who eventually are the ones who took over uh, Eretz Israel and destroyed the Second Temple. And then there were the Hellenists, the Greeks of Greece, I guess, right? The Athens. So they, they, were, they were the Greeks of Greece. The king was Antiochus. And they did not have any problem with the Jewish people living their lives and prospering however they wanted, as long as they just didn't remain in their archaic old age ways. And they became progressive. But the Jews refused to do that. And that's when, that, you know, that's what the conflict was about. It was a spiritual conflict. If they had just said, you know, we'll be like you, which the truth is majority of the Jews did. They, there was a name, was there a name for them? Or they just were Jewish Hellenists? Hellenized Jews. It was a very, very, very common thing in those days. But there were a group of Jews who refused. There's a very sad... I just, I just um, read the Megillus Antiochus. So it brings a story there that there were a thousand Jews, a thousand men and women who wanted to keep Shabbos. There were three things that the Greeks like went out, full out against. Brismila, um, because they said the body of human form is perfect. right? They were very into the physical physique, etc. How can you say that there's a part of the body that is... is is Orla, is like trash, basically. Got to get rid of it. They were very against Prismila. They were very against the lunar calendar, interestingly. They said it doesn't make any sense, which is true. <laughs> it doesn't really make any sense. Um, but that's not why we keep the lunar calendar. Uh, they were very against that. Uh, I was thinking, maybe, is that why people call people loonies? Like the loony bin? They believe in the lunar calendar? I was like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> But I was just curious about that. I was like, hmm, maybe. 
Um, and they were very against Shabbos. Because Shabbos is saying that Hashem rested. They weren't against like, festivals in general. They were against Shabbos. Because it's the idea that Hashem created the world and Hashem rested. And it just doesn't make any logical sense. Um, so the Jews wanted to keep Shabbos. And they went into a cave. There were a thousand men and women went into a cave to keep Shabbos. And somebody informed on them. And a bunch of soldiers came and they said, we need to come out. And they mistakenly thought that you're not allowed to fight on Shabbos. Interesting. I don't know. There's something interesting that's brought in the Megillah that they thought that you're not allowed to like, fight. Well, you're not technically allowed to go out and start a war on Shabbos unless it's a holy war and whatever. You're not allowed to use weapons on Shabbos unless, obviously, you're defending your life. But they thought they're not allowed to fight. So they, they refused. They refused. They didn't defend themselves. They said, we're not coming out. Um, they said, come, come out. Come be like us. Come, come, come live the life. You know, we're not, we're not going to hurt you. Just come and live the life that we, um, that we live. They refused, and they ended up blocking the entrance and smoking, putting, like, smoke, and all of them died. That's where their rebellion started. That's when the Hashmonaim, after this happened, they killed a thousand Jews, that the Hashmonaim, who were a family of Kayanim, really got up. They went, they killed, the, they, they killed a bunch of, of Greeks, and one of them fled all the way to Antiochus and said, if you're going to fight, um, if you're going to fight these people, you need to send your whole army. Don't just send a few people. Even like, don't send the whole army, crush it completely. So he sent the whole army. And that's, what, that's part of the tremendous miracle. That the Hashmonaim, who were literally a few, what do we call them today? How do you, there's, there's different types of fighting. Gorilla. There's guerrilla, guerrilla warfare, right? I think they're the original guerrilla warfare. Um, a few people against the entire army, and they actually, they actually won. They actually won the war. Um, and this is, this is a recorded story. And then actually Antiochus pulled out all of his troops from the land of Israel for 100 years. The Hashmonaim ruled Israel for 100 years until the Romans came. And the explanation is why did they lose, why, why did they lose their rule? Because they were not supposed to act as kings. The Hashmonaim were Kohanim. And we know that the rule, rule is that if you're a leader, if you're a king, you have to be from Yehuda. They didn't give the kingship over to Yehuda, and so they were actually ended up being wiped out, and their reign never lasted. But um, so the story was ve- is very, very much one of a spiritual war. As opposed to in the time of Haman, Haman didn't care if you, if, if you just weren't a religious practicing Jew. Um, very, very similar to the story of, of Hitler, right? People thought, people thought if we just convert and we just get the papers, then we'll be, we'll be saved. And, and there's a whole history, unfortunately, in the Holocaust of Jews doing that on obtaining conversions and baptisms and unofficial papers that they thought would help them. And in the end, nobody was helped in that way. Um, Haman as well. The difference with Haman and Hitler is that in, in the days of Haman, where the self-sacrifice element that comes in there, I'm going on a rant, but anyway. Um, <laughs> and I also know that I'm not here for Purim, so I'm just trying to like... Um, um, that Haman was unable to know just because if the Jew just dropped everything and started to live as if he wasn't Jewish, how are they supposed to know he was Jewish? As opposed to in the days of Hitler when they, it was already like marked into their papers and you couldn't run away from it. People, like it was in the records, you couldn't run away from it. But, so that's where the like, sac- self-sacrifice element of Purim came in, that if they had just dropped everything, they, they wouldn't have known that they were Jews and then they wouldn't have been killed and they still didn't drop everything. But when it, came to, when it came to the story of Hanukkah, it was very, very, very clear. Live like us, we won't touch you, we won't harm you, you can live just like us. You'll get all the privileges that we get. Refuse and, and we'll, we'll kill you. That was the rule. 
the what was the spiritual wise? We said Lashkicham Torah Secha. To forget, don't forget Torah. Don't forget the Torah. You can learn the Torah. It's a very cool historical ancient book, and we appreciate that. But it shouldn't be Torah Secha, your Torah, the God, the Torah of Hashem. Forget Hashem in in the picture here. And we said Lavir Chukei specifically the Chukim, those laws, those mitzvahs which don't have any logical meaning behind them. Um, and the Rebbe actually explains that what the Yidden did in response to this ban against Chukim, they didn't say, okay, we'll drop the laws that don't make sense. They turned every single mitzvah that they did into a chayk. Every single mitzvah that they did, they gave it the status of a chayk, or something that we don't understand. Even the mitzvahs we do understand, we're going to do them as though we don't understand them. So it was a very, very much like an intellectual war going on. It was a war of like belief, of emunah, of faith versus intellect. Um, and so we celebrate through light. We celebrate through lighting the candles, not through physically. Yes, we eat donuts and latkes, but that's because they have lots of oil. Um, but we celebrate the, the mitzvah of celebrating the redemption of Hanukkah is with light because it was a spiritual war that was won. And so what we're trying to understand in this mimer, after we give that introduction, we already started to go into it briefly on Thursday, is what is this light? What is the light of the menorah? What does it represent? What does the menorah represent? And um, so we're going to be going a little bit, you know, leave the store behind, as the Altarebbe does, try and understand quite a few concepts and ideas, and then go back and bring it all together. So we already started doing that by discussing that there's a pasuk, Ner mitzvah v'torah are, right? That the mitzvah is a candle and the Torah is light. And so the altar is going to say, in order for us to understand the connection, the significance of lighting the menorah, the significance of light and its connection to the story of Hanukkah, first we need to understand a few of these things as well. So we started to discuss why, I don't know if you guys remember, do you remember why is ner, why is a candle compared to a mitzvah and the Torah compared to the light, the fire? The Rebbe says this is an exact mashal, an exact analogy for a mitzvah and for Basically, um, like a candle, it enables the light to exist, like the way like mitzvot enable like the Torah to actually like come into physicality. Yeah, yeah. So we said that a candle, um, oil, doesn't have any light of its own, right? Mm -hmm. And on the contrary, if you would put fire into, stick a fire into the oil, it would go out. But because of the way that the oil works with the wick, the fire is dependent upon the oil in order to exist. So he said the same thing is with mitzvahs, that mitzvahs, mitzvahs come directly from what we call kalim. They come directly from vessels. They're not light. Mitzvahs aren't light. They don't have the light of their own. But they fuel the Torah. The Torah, which is light, which is Hashem's wisdom, exists in order to explain the mitzvahs. Especially it brings down the, the idea of the oral Torah, the entire oral Torah, which is part of Torah. Hashem sees them very much equal, the written Torah and the oral Torah. The oral Torah exists in order to explain the mitzvahs. So it's fueled from the mitzvah. So even though the mitzvah doesn't have any intellect, any light of its own, it's what fuels the Torah, which is the light, the intellect, and the wisdom of Hashem, and brings it down into this world. So it's called Torah or... So ner mitzvah v'torah or, yeah, yeah. I think that it's from this pasuk, the idea of Torah or, yeah. So mitzvahs are the candle, <clears throat> oral Torah is the flame. Yeah. Uh, we would say the whole Torah, but very specifically the oral Torah, which is there to explain to us at the end of the day how to do the mitzvahs. So if we didn't have the mitzvahs, we wouldn't have the Torah, right? If we didn't have the candle, we wouldn't have the flame. But the flame is the light. 
right? The flame is what burns. So, so they really, really, they really, really work together. And um, so, so that, that idea was, was explained and it's kind of put onto the side and then we move on to, the, to another idea on, oh, we don't have any pages here, on the next page um, to start and understand this concept in what's called Aravodat Hashem. How does this practically, how can we practically understand this, especially as we know that the, that the menorah was a very, very big part of the daily life of the Beit HaMikdash, which is a mini a mini version of our entire service of Hashem can be condensed into the Beit HaMikdash. Every single action that was taken, every single part of the service in the Beit HaMikdash represents on a broader scale the service that we have on an individual on an individual level and outside of the Beit HaMikdash. We serve Hashem and we have a model of how we serve Hashem in the Beit HaMikdash, right? Because Hashem was there and how did Hashem say to serve him? Well, he said you need a Mizbeach and you need an Aaron and you need a menorah. So we need to understand what significance of serving Hashem is there with the menorah. So first of all, we've established so far that we know that the menorah represents the, there's the candle element and there's the light. And we know that that represents the Torah and the mitzvahs. And we're going to have to discuss and understand now what the significance of Aaron coming to light the menorah is. Why did Aaron specifically have to come in the morning and in the evening to light the menorah? And what significance does that have? So... Let's summarize what we just said before about the lamp and the oil and the wick, and then we'll move on to an explanation in our service of Hashem specifically. So to summarize, again, sorry, I can't give you the page numbers, but at the bottom of the right. <laughs> at the bottom of the right, yeah. Right here. Okay, got it? To summarize, just like the main component of a lamp is specifically the oil, even the oil, it, self doesn't directly produce fire or light, but the entire light and fire of the lamp is drawn forth from the oil through the wick. So too, even though the mitzvahs themselves are not directly understandable, but the entire wisdom and knowledge of the oral Torah derives from explaining how to fulfill the mitzvahs properly. Thus, all the spiritual light and fire of the Gemara and other parts of the oral Torah all derive essentially from the mitzvahs themselves. So here, as I guess as you were saying, it's specifically speaking about, about the oral Torah. Okay. So now, next page. So now let's explain this idea in more detail in our own service of Hashem. How can we apply these concepts, these ideas? What's the significance of lighting a, a fire onto a wick and a candle in our own service of Hashem? So he makes it, it is written in the Torah, that every morning, when he would improve and clean out, the candles, Yaktirena, and he would burn the incense. Ubahalot Arnetanerot, and when Aaron would light the candles, Ben Harbain, in the evening, Yaktirena, and he would burn the Katoris, he would burn the incense. So we actually say this every morning for those who say the Korbanot, it's part of our davening, these psukim from the Torah, which detail to us the service that Aaron and then the Kohen Gadols that w- would come after him would have which was that every morning they would come in, they would behetivo, they would improve the candles, they would clean them out from the light of the previous day. So first they would clean it, and then they would light the candle, and then they would burn the incense. And then again in the evening they would come, they would light the candle, and then they would burn the incense. So the candles were lit twice a day, in the morning and in the evening. As it says here on the base of Mikdash, the menorah was lit twice, in the morning and in the afternoon. Time of lighting the menorah corresponded to the time of performing a different service, the offering of the katoris, the incense. 
which was also performed once in the morning and once in the afternoon. And now the Alter is going to ask a question, which is a very simple one. Why is it that in the morning it mentions that he would clean out the candles from the night before? He would clean it out first, he would improve it and set it up and then light. But when it came to the evening, it doesn't mention that. It just says that he would ha'alot, he would light the candle. And also, it's a very interesting lashon. Laha'alot. How would we usually say to, to light the candles? Like, how do we say in Hebrew? Lahadlik, right? Lahadlik nerot Shabbat. <clears throat> so it should have said lahadlik, to kindle. But instead it says laha'alot, to raise up the candles. So we need to also understand why is it using this interesting, um, this interesting lashon. So now the author is going to say, in order to answer this question, we have to understand in general what does the menorah represent. Why, what, so the question is a very simple one on the Pasuk. Why in the morning and in the evening, why in the morning does it mention that he cleaned it out, in the evening it does not before he lit it, and less explicitly asked, but it will be answered, why does it use the term laha'alot et anerot instead of lahadlik, to raise up the candle instead of to light it. In order to understand that, we need to understand what the menorah represents. And according to Kabbalah, the menorah represents Knesset Yisrael. So there's a difference when you hear the term B'nai Yisrael, and when you hear the term Knesset Yisrael. B'nai Yisrael is talking about all of the individual Jews who make up B'nai Yisrael, the sons of Israel. It's talking about each one as an individual, and then them coming together as one group, the sons of Israel, B'nai Yisrael. Knesset Yisrael is a spiritual term. It's referring to the Jewish people as they exist up on high, spiritually in their source. And Knesset is, means a congregation. Knesset is singular. It doesn't say Knesset, the congregations of Israel. It says the congregation of Israel, as opposed to Bnei Israel, the sons, plural, of Israel. The reason is because in our source, up on high, the source of the Neshamot of the Jewish people are one. They're called Knesset Israel. It exists in Malchut of Atzilut. That's like the source of it. And it's a spiritual... It's a spiritual idea of the source of the souls of the Jewish people, and it's one thing. It's undiv- indivisible. It's completely a unified concept. Knesset Yisrael. It's the source of all of our souls. But in its source, all of these souls are not individual clusters of souls that make up one broader congregation, but it starts off as one thing and then breaks off as each soul comes down. You get the difference? Yeah? And this is signified specifically by the menorah. Why does the menorah symbolize Knesset Yisrael, the source of the souls of the Jewish people? Something very unique about the menorah and the building and the instructions that Hashem gave Moshe to build the menorah that was not that case for any other vessel. Do you know what that was? One trunk. One, like, one piece of gold. Yeah. He told Moshe, you have to make the menorah out of one piece of gold, which is very, very, very difficult. Right? Every other vessel in the Beit HaMikdash was able to be made up of different, even if it was all made of one material, you gather material from all different places and you meld them together and you build the vessel. The menorah had to start off from one, it must have been ginormous piece of gold, and they had to work with this one, and there were many, many intricacies on the menorah. There were flowers and there were designs. It, nothing could be stuck on from a foreign place. Take this one block of gold and you have to make the whole menorah. What's the relevance? Why does that reference? Kabbalah explains it. So it's a deeper level of why it had to be from one, um, from one piece of gold. Mikshah, it's called. Like one solid piece. It's because, Kabbalistically, spiritually, the menorah represents Knesset Yisrael, which starts off as one solid entity. 
where there's absolutely no divisional separation, and then branches off, right? As we have the branches, which we're going to discuss the significance. We'll start discussing tomorrow the significance of the fact that it branches off. But so far, in general, the menorah is representative of the Jewish people as a whole, of the source of the souls of the Jewish people. And the reason being, as we said, because it comes from mixture, it comes from one piece. And um, tomorrow we're going to discuss what the significance of it branching off into seven is. But in general, it's, this is very much the emphasis that the Alter Rebbe puts on this concept of Avat Yisrael. How can you command a Jew to just love another Jew, right? And the answer is, well, you're one, right? You're one thing. And when you're able to see it that way, um, that at your source, you're literally all one, that, then that can help. And it's very interesting that we say, Hareni makabel alai mitzvah We said before prayers. In the Nusach, have I mentioned this to you before? In the Nusach um, Ari, Arizal, it's like one of the fundamental things you say before you start praying, you start off with, I accept upon myself, and I just learned uh, in the past few months the reason why. I got very excited. I might have told you already. Um, why is this so important? And I was telling you that I have this um, book that gives you like the most important prayers depending on how much time you have. From, I got it from Kamaga. Um, and Harini Makabel comes, even if you have like only five minutes to daven, you say it. And uh, I was learning Tanya once and explained why. He said because when we are davening, we're giving ourselves up as a sacrifice to Hashem, right? Davening was put in place of the korbanot. We don't do korbanot today, we do prayer. And if you want to give a sacrifice to Hashem, it has to be complete. That was the rule. It had to be tamim. They would inspect the animal. If it had a blemish, you couldn't bring it. And so the idea is, because the Jewish people are one thing, if you have a grudge against someone else, you have hatred in your heart toward another Jew, you cannot be a whole, pure offering to Hashem when you daven. Because there's something missing within you. Because you need that person to make you whole. And so that's why we accept upon ourselves before even davening that we, the, this command of because the truth is that we are literally one in our source. All of our souls are one. And so that's just a side point. Um, tomorrow we're going to start to discuss what's the significance of the fact that this one piece branches off into seven. Seven, we're going to see seven distinct unique souls of the Jewish people. Okay. We'll continue tomorrow, and we're getting we get a little lofty here, and then we're gonna come back. <laughs> okay. So have a wonderful day and a wonderful.